because we now are going to be joined by uh, Callum McPherson, who's head of commodities at Investec. Thank you very much indeed for for joining us, Callum. Um, you know, we we um, well, Ian's talked about you know Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the energy crisis. Um, you know, some in Europe are facing because of this. But in terms of supply, supply and demand and uh, the price for oil and gas, who actually holds the keys? Is it Russia, China or OPEC? Oh, Sarah, thanks very much for having me. It's great to be, on to be able to talk about these things. Uh, well, I think all of, all of them hold uh, a very significant influence. Um, if we start with China on the demand side for oil, um, China is really one of the key uncertainties at the moment. So. Total global oil consumption is around 100 million barrels per day. Uh, China accounts for around 15% of that, that demand. And at the, at the moment, or over the course of this year, it, it's probably using maybe a million barrels per day less than it might have been doing if it were not for all these COVID restrictions and, and all the rest of it. Now, a million barrels per day doesn't sound like that much, perhaps 1% of total demand. But actually, if we have a surplus or deficit of a million barrels per day, that is actually pretty significant in, in terms of the price range it could drive um, for, for Brent or other, other, other crude references. Um, so China is a key, key question. Uh, obviously, there have been the protests and, and, and now some easing in, in, in lockdown measures. And that sounds like that should be a good thing for demand. But that's not necessarily the case if it leads to outbreaks of COVID and, and stricter lockdowns. And the problem that the Chinese have is that uh, a lot of the elderly people are not particularly well vaccinated and potentially the vaccines are not very good uh, either and, and they won't use uh, foreign uh, vaccines. Um, so there's, there's an awful lot of uncertainty about exactly how things are going to play out for, for China um, over, over this winter. Um, then turning on to the supply side, now obviously Russia and, and, and OPEC have joined together in this OPEC plus group with, with other, some other uh, non-OPEC members as well. And at their OPEC meeting uh, in, in October, they decided to cut output limits by 2 million barrels per day, which we think probably lead to something like a million barrels per day of, of, of actual production cuts in, in November, because a lot of the members aren't producing up to their limits. Um, but if OPEC were to go further in cutting uh, output limits, um, then a lot more of the members then would start to have to reduce actual production. So it becomes a much more complicated discussion than, than the last one, which was really uh, about Saudi Arabia and the UAE putting through production cuts because they were actually up, up to their limits. So I think it becomes more complicated. Uh, then on gas, certainly as far as Europe is concerned, uh, I mean, Russia clearly has the keys, there's no doubt about that. So I'm just wondering, going forward, what will influence the prices of oil and gas? Will it again be influenced by inferior vaccines, COVID vaccines in China? Yeah, well, I think going into next year, uh, the, the China reopening is, is probably the big story on, on the demand side, which, which we've sort of talked about. I mean, presumably there will be a reopening and demand will increase, but exactly how smooth that is and when it happens, that, that's really the area of uncertainty there. And, and then, on the demand side, more generally, there's there's the danger of global slowdowns and things like this, which could 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 be an issue. But I think certainly there's uh, if uh, China does reopen and we don't demand more broadly do, do, remains reasonably solid, then we, we could actually see the market being in a, the oil market being a significant deficit, uh, reasonable deficit next year. So it could be quite supportive for prices. 
Then on the gas uh, side, well, we, we get through this winter uh, somehow, we have some inventory left, um, but then the question is how do we rebuild that inventory? And um, we're gonna need to try and do that in Europe. With, you know, although we've had interrupted supplies from Russia for about 12 months now, mm -hmm. the fact is through the first half of this year, actually there were good supplies, well, reasonable supplies of gas coming in from Russia. We're not going to have that next year. I think it's fair to assume. And on top of that, the other consequence of the Chinese reopening would be more uh, Chinese uh, LNG demand. So additional competition there for, for, for cargoes of, of LNG. And uh, it seems quite plausible that next winter might be even more difficult than this one, as far as gas is concerned. So I know within our audience, there are investors who invest within this sector. So how are oil and gas prices interacting with other markets like equities? Well, for oil usually is quite strongly correlated with equities. So if you have a, a, a macro environment that is bullish and positive, you get equities going up, that's good for oil, an environment that's good for oil, and so oil prices tend to go up as well. So they tend to be positively correlated. Um, but that sort of breaks down when oil prices get so high that it actually really damages the economy. And of course, that's what we've been having over the, much of this year. So they've been negatively correlated. Now we're back with uh, Brent uh, at 80 or even below 80 this morning, dollars per barrel, then we're perhaps starting to get back into, the, in, into this other mode and perhaps they'll become more correlated again. We'll, we'll see, particularly if there's a, the China reopening and so on, so that could, that could happen together. Uh, on gas prices though, I think there's a potentially a much more uh, a serious uh, impact for, for perhaps equity markets because we, we have a situation where gas prices electricity prices in, in Europe are maybe five or have been 10 times as expensive as they have been in the US. Um, so that re opens real questions about the sustainability of, of European uh, industry, energy intensive in industry. Um, it's a massive economic advantage for the US where they have cheap uh, energy. And, and if this situation persists, which it does seem like it could well do for, for next year, then that, that I think that will have um, significant implications for company valuations and so on uh, coming out of that being enjoyed great conclusions. So I'm, I'm just wondering what do you think about the re reaction of the policymakers in Europe in terms of how they are dealing with the energy crisis? Well I think they've tended to look at it as being a problem of market design. They've seen these uh, very aggressive swings in gas markets and they've thought this is a bit crazy, it's to do with speculators and, and all the rest of it. Um, but the simple fact is that if you've got a situation where you're, you're, you're trying, consumers are trying to consume more gas than you have available, whether that's in storage or current supply, um, and particularly if you're offering subsidies to enable people to continue buying, even if prices do rise, then you have a situation where prices can get to arbitrarily high levels. Um, so the market is really just trying to sort of cope with this situation. Um, the, the, the only real way to, to address this is, and, and to cap prices, if you like, is, is to try and manage down demand. But of course, that's, that's very painful to do. And that's, of course, why politicians have tried to look for these other options, uh, unfortunately. So as we're going to learn from some of our presentations within this event, it's not just traditional exploration and production these days is it because oil and gas companies are expect you are expected to continue to navigate the energy transition 
And I'm thinking they have to adapt to the impacts of carbon emissions, hydrogen and integrated refineries. There's a lot to consider. Yes, and I think actually following on from the very interesting uh, presentation by, by ADX, if we focus on Europe and obviously they're doing a lot of very, very interesting and innovative things. Um, but it's, it's worth remembering that generally European oil and gas production is relatively low carbon compared to other, other um, uh, available sources uh, because we have strong restrictions on, on, on uh, flaring and, and things like that. So, that, so a lot of progress has been made and, and, and more can be done. It's particularly noticeable if you compare it to LNG. So if, if we're going to liquefy gas and transport it and regasify it, that's a very intensive, energy intensive process. It uh, has a large carbon footprint. And, and consequently, it makes a lot of sense to use um, to domestic European gas in, in, in Europe. Um, uh, but I think then more generally where, where we go from here in the energy transition, uh, a lot of uh, investment and carbon emissions have been sunk in infrastructure that's been put in place in the North Sea and, and, and so forth. So it makes a lot of sense to, to try and see if we can use that for carbon capture and, uh, and things of that sort. And then, and then just on the hydrogen question, I just sort of say very briefly that we must remember that there's an awful lot of, of hydrogen used today uh, in, um, in, in um, desulfurization in refineries and producing fertilizers and things like this. And, and I think perhaps there's plenty to, to go at in terms of decarbonizing that before we start to get on to developing a hydrogen economy and changing other sources. So to, to me, that's where the focus ought to be. Okay, I'm actually kind of tickled by the phrase that you've used unintentionally there, sunk into the North Sea. But uh, finally, because we are running out of time, um, themes we should be aware of that will influence our investment decisions in this sector, I'm thinking um, inflation, cost of pipes, <laughs> cost of people, and things like, you know, a pro prolong prolonged war or even, God forbid, an escalation of it. Well, I mean, I'm not going to try and make any forecast about what's going to happen with, with, with the war, but I, I, I think the, the current situation we're fa facing is probably going to continue for some uh, extended period, whether, whether the, the war comes to an end fairly quickly or, or not. It doesn't look as if it will be very quick. Um, but I think much more broadly, um, what, what I hope we sort of learn from this energy crisis, and I say we, not just people in the industry, but everybody, uh, is, is actually how, it, it, um, it, it's just actually how valuable energy is. Um, we, we shouldn't think of this as energy, whatever form it is, as, as something that's cheap and easy and we can just rely on. It, 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 we, need to, we, need to, we need to change our relationship of it, we, of it and, and with it. Um, so, and, and certainly any kind of uh, energy transition, whichever path you go down, it, it, it becomes very much easier if you use less energy and if you use it in a way that, that, that uh, works in sympathy with what's available. So particularly if we're going to add more renewables, and we will be adding more renewables, um, there's a lot that needs to be done alongside that to make that work effectively. Uh, things like smart metering so that we, we're not turning on our washing machines at peak times at six o'clock in the evening. Um, to things like increasing connectivity between countries. So when it's windy in one place, but not in another, that, that power can be, can be shifted. Um, so I think one of the main things I'd say is, is that 
in, in terms of investing in the energy transition, it's not just going to be about more, more renewables. There, there definitely will be more of that, and there needs to be more of that. But there's probably a, a, a similar amount of investment going to be needed in, in all kinds of things connected with grid connectivity and, uh, and storage and uh, smart metering and all these other kinds of things. So, so there's a lot, lots of interesting things there to look at. I, I think it'll be a very exciting space over the next few years. Very good. And um, yes, I'm learning to change my relationship with my washing machine. I actually own a mangle and uh, it certainly, oh, well, it certainly <laughs> will be used. Uh, Callum McPherson, Head of Commodities at Investec, thank you very much indeed for that macroeconomic overview. It's, uh, it's uh, much enlightened. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by Master Investor. For more investment and economics analysis, please visit masterinvestor.co.uk.